0: I'm Melanie Ho, author of Beyond Leaning In, Gender Equity and What Organizations Are Up Against. It's a different kind of business book, based in research, but told as a novel and designed to spark discussion and change about gender equity in the workplace. Thank you for joining this discussion, as my co-host, Carla Hickman, and I talk about the challenges that women continue to face at work that are too often only discussed behind closed doors.
1: Welcome back, everyone. This is Carla Hickman. Today's episode, we're going to discuss the importance of male voices and male allies, their perspective, and conversations about gender equity in the workplace. Now, Melanie, this is something that you and I have talked about many times across the many years of our friendship, and certainly as you were writing the novel. And so I'm sure many of our readers and listeners would be interested as you were writing a book that is so much about women in the workplace. What was important to you about including men? both in the novel and making sure that this was a book that they would want to read and engage in too. One of my big
0: pet peeves over the years has been that women in leadership efforts in workplaces so often are exclusively for women to talk to one another. And I think that space is so important, but that obviously we're not going to solve the problem if it's just women talking to one another. That just reinforces the idea that it's our fault and that we all need to lean in. And so when I started writing Beyond Leaning In, my goal was to have a book that would bring both men and women into the conversation with one another, create a space, spark discussion among both men and women, and also among men with each other. Sometimes that's necessary. But it was funny as I started writing the book and I talked to some publishing industry experts early on, and people basically told me that was unrealistic, that you have to pick one audience for a book and that men wouldn't want to read a book about gender equity. And I feel like that's just not giving enough credit to men and their interest in really advancing how we are as a society on this topic. And so from the early days, I thought of Beyond Leaning In as something where wanting to have the perspectives of both male and female characters and characters across genders and also generations and giving everyone an opportunity to see a little bit of themselves perhaps
1: but also to put themselves in the shoes
0: of characters unlike them.
1: Well, and hopefully for many of our men, there will be characters here they identify with, but it will also give them a way to talk about what could have been uncomfortable or confusing situations they'd encountered or to reflect privately on situations before that helps them develop the language to share that then with their teams or with other people in their in their office communities. Exactly, on the reflecting privately?
0: So much of the problem with current diversity, equity and inclusion trainings is that you're running from meeting to meeting to meeting to meeting and then suddenly are thrust into this situation where you have to discuss really complicated topics without any of that reflection beforehand.
1: That's right. And I think that's happening in many organizations. When I talk to friends, um, certainly in my organization, we're doing even more diversity, equity, and inclusion training. We want that to be part of the regular workday, but we just had a great conversation at work the other day about, hey, maybe we dedicate more space and time for this so that it isn't wedged in between meetings on a busy day. Well, I want to dive right in because we've got a great excerpt from Beyond Leaning In to here today. So just like we did last time, set the scene for us and help our readers understand what they're about to hear. The excerpt
0: you're about to hear narrated by Brittany Goodwin from the audiobook is by the perspective of a character named Kyle he's a manager in his early 30s and he's part of a task force that is looking at cost savings reductions in his company rest assured the excerpt is not about cost savings it's about the social dynamics of this task force the task force has 15 people on it four of them are men so there, right away, something interesting because the gender split of their company is about 50-50, but in this service-based task force, it is primarily women. Now, even more interesting than that is that even though the task force is primarily women, as Kyle discusses it with some of his female friends who are on the task force, they point out to him that at every single meeting, 70% of the conversation, the airtime is taken up by the smaller number of men in the room. They also point out to him that they think that seating dynamics have something to do with it because the four men all sit at the two heads of the table, whereas the women sit on the sides, the longer sides of the table. And what that means is that the men end up volleying back and forth to one another, almost as if it were a tennis match. And the women are in their peripheral vision, so they can kind of ignore them while they just focus on what, to the women, seems like men trying to one-up each other and win the argument with one another and it's something where as Kyle listens to this he's trying to understand it he sort of gets it he doesn't quite understand the why don't the woman just do something about it and so they say to him well yeah we actually have a plan we're going to do something about it the next meeting and so the excerpt we're about to hear is their plan for kind of taking back the meeting and taking those dynamics back.
2: As soon as Kyle arrived at the next task force meeting, he realized the plan was indeed in place. All the women must have arrived early to grab their seats. They had overwhelmed both heads of the table, leaving the only four open seats all next to one another on one of the long sides of the table. If the tendency to volley back and forth across the table, ignoring the women in their peripheral vision, was indeed a factor that contributed to male domination of the conversation, The women had effectively eliminated that possibility by forcing the men to sit next to one another in a row in the only remaining chairs. Kyle took one of the remaining seats and watched the other men walk in soon after him. Jack looked at the head of the table facing the door. Kyle saw his double take turn to annoyance as he saw Meg and Amber there. Crowded room today, Jack said. Did he think the reason his seat had been taken was that there were simply more people attending that day? Well, maybe better that than he realized that all the women, including senior ones, Kyle realized, as he saw Meg try to hide a smile, had conspired to force the men into their desired seating chart. Am I late? Leland asked as he took the seat to the left of Kyle, even though the clock clearly showed it was exactly on the hour. Dan walked in right after Leland and didn't seem to notice. He slid into the only remaining seat, dropped his stack of papers and laptop on the table in front of them, letting them spread out far beyond the amount of appropriate space, and then leaned back in his chair as far as it would go without falling over. Even with the four men all scrunched into their allocated space, it was typical of Dan to find a way to expand his own personal area. Jack passed out the agenda. First item up is sustainability. You all know we just replaced paper towels in the bathrooms with air dryers, but that's pretty much all we've done so far. Sydney had a great idea the other day, said Meg. She was mentioning various low-cost ways she'd heard that other companies encourage carpooling among their employees who live near one another. It's all about drawing on principles of gamification, Sydney said. You know, you get points for carpooling or walking to work or taking the bus or whatever. At a certain number of points, there's some kind of reward. But it doesn't have to be expensive, a small amount of money or tokens toward prizes, or even the ability to attend a special event. Does that really work? Jack sounded skeptical. Kyle wasn't surprised. Jack was pretty old-fashioned and always believed in the stick more than the carrot when it came to incentives. Kyle waited to see how Sydney would argue her point, but instead it was Cassandra who chimed in. There's been a lot of research in behavioral economics about social proof, basically what you might think of as peer pressure or keeping up with the Joneses. Bet if we had a leaderboard tracking how many different points people were earning and who were the winners, some folks would just want to win. Jack had begun to reply, but Amber also started talking at the same time. She raised her voice a little with each word so that Jack eventually stopped. Wonder if it'd be more effective as people signing up in groups rather than an individual competition? Oh, interesting, said Shannon, because then you have the added dimension of peer accountability, not wanting to disappoint your team. But could that have negative consequences? Creating conflict if people are frustrated with their teams? Hmm... I love the idea of peer accountability, but yeah, it could cause problems, said Meg. Cassandra, what would the research say? After Cassandra replied, Meg turned to Kyle. I know your team really got into the fitness competition we did as a company last year. Any lessons from that? She asked. Kyle didn't use the gender tracker, but by the end of the meeting he would have guessed that women had talked about 70% of the time, proportionate to their percent of the meeting attendees, and for the first time, all of the women had talked at least a few times. Did they simply feel more confident because they'd taken the power positions in the room and rallied together for this experiment? Did the men feel unsettled even if they didn't quite know why, and were they less likely to talk as a result? Was the usual ability for the men to look across one another from the two opposite heads of the table really that powerful? Kyle thought about various female direct reports he'd worried were getting lost in meetings over the years, and how he'd thought he was woke when he tried to help them raise their voice. Just get in there. Don't let people talk over you. Keep talking. He'd assumed that supporting women was about helping them understand how to assert themselves around men like Jack who talked a good game on gender, but in truth, only listened to women, and frankly men, who exhibited a certain kind of more stereotypically masculine swagger. Sure enough, there had been a few moments in the meeting where Kyle had noticed that if one of the women hadn't raised her voice or interrupted, Jack would have dominated the conversation and not let anyone else get a word in. But that wasn't the only way they had made sure they were heard. What was most striking about the task force meeting wasn't the amount that the women were talking, but how the whole tenor of the meeting felt different. Nobody was stridently trying to make or debate arguments. They were calling on one another if they thought someone else had something to say. Did you all plan in advance what you were going to say? Kyle asked Shannon after. She tilted her head. No, did it seem like we did? You called on each other a lot he said. Then he paused. Though I guess people also called on me and the other men a few times, and I suppose we weren't in on the plan. She laughed. Yep, that's just the difference of a meeting where people are each focused on their individual contribution alone, as opposed to one where they're thinking about how to lift the whole group collectively. Kyle looked at the notepad he'd been using for meetings the last few months. From this meeting, He had a page full of thoughts and ideas that stemmed from the discussion. At previous meetings, he had been so busy talking, or thinking about what he'd say next, that he hadn't been listening, and hadn't written anything much down as a result. He remembered something his mom had told him when he was a kid. If you spend all your time talking, you're not listening, and you're not learning. When they'd first talked about meetings being like a back-and-forth sports match, Kyle had thought about tennis, with literal volleying back and forth between players, but maybe basketball was the more appropriate metaphor. It was like the value of the point as opposed to the value of the assist. The assist, helping someone else advance or clarify their ideas, should be as important as each individual scoring more points. After all, advancing collective business aims required everyone have as many points as possible and that necessitated assists. The problem was that promotions, raises, choice assignments, public recognition, those all came from getting points. That was the game that Kyle had been playing, and for which he had been personally rewarded. You couldn't be a total jerk, but the system was rigged against those who spent too much time on assists, and not points. He had enjoyed the group discussion today. It had been full of assists, But he doubted those who controlled the scoreboard—in that room it was Jack, Leland, and Dan—would remember anything but the points.
0: Welcome back, everyone. I'm really excited to have Jackson and Jeff here with us today. Can you two introduce yourselves before we dive deep into your thoughts on the book?
3: Hello, my name is Jackson Boyer. I am co-founder and CEO of a company called Mentor Collective. We are 55 full-time employees. And as the founder, I have had to learn a lot about culture and take on those responsibilities, whether I was ready or not. So this book in particular has been enlightening and a great point of reflection for me.
4: Hi, my name is Jeff Martin. I'm a senior director in EAB's... Research and Insights Division. Been with the company for about 10 years. We're an organization of over 1,500 employees working in research and tech and managed services. I'm pleased to be here. This scene to me reminded me of
3: experiences I've had with women in my own company. Kyle's character in particular really resonated with me because it seemed that he had a lot of confidence among the middle management of the company, and they had these conversations after work reflecting on different gender dynamics within the workplace. And my background is as a startup founder, a startup whose first six employees were men, and we finally hired our first woman, my co-founder's male, as our seventh employee. Today we're, I think, over 60% women. And while we have a lot of room to grow, it's definitely been an evolution and we've made progress, I think, over the last several years. And I think that progress was made largely because of women who voiced their opinions and thoughts to me about the workplace. And I think there was a moment I had maybe a couple of years ago where I suddenly like stepped back from the meetings I was in and noticed a lot of things that I hadn't before. Just a couple different themes here. I'd be curious for your thoughts, Jeff, but like definitely have my own socialization to be assertive in a meeting, not just as a CEO, but as a man in general. I think I was very quiet in college seminars and sort of beat myself up because of that. A lot of my friends were very good at like inserting themselves into conversations. I've actually been told by advisors to interrupt people more, to like exert my agenda on the, the meeting. But I'll stop
4: talking there. I would love to hear your thoughts, Jeff. It's funny that you mentioned you were quiet in college seminars. I was at the exact opposite end of the spectrum. And oftentimes I feel like personally, my challenge, not my challenge, a challenge, one of many, I'm sure there's a very long list, is reining in my impulse to talk and to contribute my ideas. And it's funny, you mentioned your experience in college seminars being counseled to speak up more, to interrupt more, getting that explicit message of the way to be successful is to exhibit these, you could say, stereotypically male behaviors. I don't have this, for me personally, I don't have the same foundational memory of being told, oh, you should be this way. But when I'm interacting in a group setting, aligns very closely with what our culture sees as traditionally male, more assertive, I have to remind myself, respond to what the person before you said, in many instances. And this this scene for me, one, I think, underscored, honestly, across much of the book, I saw behaviors that I have worked hard to exercise from my work behaviors. But on top of that, it also underscored for me, it's funny, I think in this particular meeting in the scene, 70% of the people are women. And I think for me, the scene underscored that demographics does not equal culture, that structural changes have to be made to the ways organizations are run for that to happen. Jackson, I'd be curious to hear what deliberate changes you've had to make to make sure that translated into cultural changes.
3: Well, I think as a company... We talk a lot about inclusive performance culture. I'm sure there are more formal titles for this work, but we are a startup that in past times was focused on survival and, and even just continuing to exist was a massive cognitive load on everybody at the organization. But as we become more stable over the years, we've had more space to invest. And I wish I could say that it was deliberate I mean, I started this company when I was 24 years old, so my capacity as a leader was incredibly limited. It was largely the women at the company who, I think the one thing we did do perhaps was create enough of an environment of trust that challenging the CEO would not have led to repercussions. I think of a startup as truly unique because you're forming your culture every single day with every hire you make and with how you respond in the first three or four months of that hire's tenure. And so we had several really influential women who joined the company who whose voices we elevated and sort of taught ourselves via their perspective as a new hire in that environment. And one of those exact pieces of feedback was idea theft in meetings, was a lack of space to have one's voice heard. And I, I think we still grapple with this today we're so focused as a company on efficient meetings and systemically, that could be a pretty male centric way to run meetings. And there's a lot in the news and pop startup culture about running meetings really efficiently. We try to label meetings as sort of free form or specific to getting something done. I think that creates a little bit more space, but I still catch myself constantly trying to like push people towards an agenda. And I think what's exhibited in the scene is sort of a more collaborative awareness of what the meeting is trying to accomplish and supporting one another to get there, as opposed to coming into the meeting where you already know the
4: answer and you're just trying to get everybody on board with your particular opinion. Your note about efficient meetings, to me, calls to mind. Elsewhere in the book, there's a discussion of a company that has a positive work culture in which in meetings teams take almost an improv theater type yes and approach to idea generation, which when I read it, both appealed very strongly to me as a way to give greater voice to team members who might otherwise worry that their contribution would be bad or disregarded and thus stay quiet in meetings. But at the same time, A thought that crossed my mind is that would take so long. And there seems to be a very direct tension between the sort of efficiency that organizations in today's climate, honestly, in any climate need to exhibit and the sort of deliberate culture building that goes into or that can achieve a more balanced and accepting culture that people actually want to work in that they won't run from.
0: I love that you both went to this question of efficiency and the way that organizations put it on a pedestal in a way that can actually cause harm to culture, but also cause harm to businesses. By the end of the book, and I won't give away any spoilers here, but there are a few scenes where characters realize that they made decisions based on efficiency that actually slowed them down. I've been fascinated by this discussion and just love and, and really appreciate how reflective you both are right now, but also it sounds like across your careers. One big theme in the book is how much women are always processing with one another what is going on across the workday. And you know, some readers have called it gossip, which another reader pointed out is actually a very feminized in a bad way term. Across the book, we see a lot of characters who are often interpreting their experiences together, and it's actually helping them reflect on how they fit into the organization. It's largely women reflecting together, but we do have Kyle as this character who has a lot of female friends. And it's actually raised an interesting question to me, which is, I know that women are always reflecting together, often behind closed doors, trying to interpret their experiences because we're having these things happen to us and are trying to make sense of it what is that that like from a male point of view
3: i certainly have people within my company and sort of investor circle or advisor circle who i could have a vulnerable conversation with about culture it's not always a conversation about race or gender dynamics in the workplace though i will say in the last year it certainly has been more often it's something that i think is sorely lacking i think it takes activation energy for me as a white male to go up to other white men who might have expectations about whether that's something they're comfortable with. I make all these assumptions about like how ready are they for that conversation. It reminds me in some ways of like a courageous conversation around race. You have to like activate this more uncomfortable space that some people might view as a distraction from the work. I will say, Melanie, like your book is a fantastic way to activate that conversation. I've already told my leadership team that I've read this book, that it's something I would be interested in discussing with them. And we do have a book club within our company where we're reading similar types of content. What's interesting, though, is who attends those meetings, if they're optional. I recognize I have, I think, a lot of power and responsibility to activate these conversations if I want to see it in my culture, because as the CEO, people will have to listen to me on some level. But I think Curious for your thoughts, Jeff. I'd love to grab a beer with a friend and talk about this
4: type of book, but I don't find that happening naturally. Yeah, I agree. Conversations among men about gender equity in the workplace are probably few and far between. That said, I do think there's an underlying strain within millennial male culture of recognizing injustice and inequities and in calling them out it's almost it yields an almost sort of cultural cachet to perform wokeness and signal i know what this is and i am able to observe it i think the problem comes in in the gap between awareness and verbal processing and action there's a scene elsewhere in the book where A male executive at a casual group hangout with a lot of colleagues, both men and women, orders tequila shots. I think it was tequila, which is an interesting choice, but that's a conversation for a different day. Orders tequila shots just for the men. And Kyle, who Jackson mentioned earlier, is aware of it, and it's pointed out to him by one of his female colleagues and friends who asked? why didn't you say something? Well, I'm just trying to keep my head down. I have good rapport with senior executives. I don't want to risk that or put it on the line. And I think there are often, you know, on Slack with my male friends at work, let's say a senior executive sends out an email that's kind of bro and other male senior executives respond in kind, and those are the only voices. It's easy enough for us to slack each other and say, can you believe that? Oh, such, you know, toxic masculinity. What we would do about that, that's, I think, where the rubber meets the road, where I and my peers have to make better efforts, that simply recognizing that simply acknowledging it does not, in LA, make you.
0: It's really interesting because as I was writing this and thinking about the conversations that I've had about gender equity with men, I'll admit that sometimes I've found it harder with millennial men because of the belief, the sense of self-identity that many millennial men tied to being woke and tied to being aware. And that I actually can have a conversation very easily with millennial men about what we see. Yes. Can you believe that email chain where the executive men were bro-ing together? you know, that's a great conversation to have with the millennial men. But when it comes to the hidden challenges, I've found that sometimes with older Gen X men or baby boomers, they don't already think of themselves as woke. And so they're really willing to say, I know absolutely nothing at all. Jeff, and what you just said, though, about reflection and iteration and why that's an important part of the process, it made me wonder about other millennial trends, like towards mindfulness or self-care or just kind of being more aware of how one moves towards the world. And if there's a way that we latch onto those to help folks question where they're woke and doing something versus, versus where they're woke and staring at the ceiling.
4: I agree entirely. I think there is a big opportunity here. That identity piece you touched on is both the challenge and probably also the solution. In my lifetime, I've seen therapy become normalized. The phrase, do the work now is something that people will broadly, at least in my generation, understand. People are at least, men are at least paying lip service to the effort that they know has to go in to remedying historical injustice and social inequities. And that is part of our identity. So I I, th- I agree. I think there is a big opportunity here. I think
3: one of the things I've tried to do as I learn more about this work is talk to others at my company about all the mistakes I've made and the mistakes I likely continue to make because of a lack of awareness. And uh, I think the it's t- some level of entitlement that you see in millennial workers. Moral superiority, I think, can be offset by, as one of them, um, talking about how much more you have to learn. I think that's where every conversation needs to start because we're so unconscious to so many of these patterns. And I think without that recognition of how much you need to learn,
4: the conversations are just grandstanding, in my experience. I think one of the things that will help us arrive there, not just the recognition that we need to learn, but the commitment to doing so is the stakes of the issue, the consequences of failure. Melanie, you touch on it elsewhere in the book at, in a scene, also featuring Kyle, at dinner where his dad is saying, oh, these millennials need to just shut up and keep their heads down and do the work and not complain. And the character, Nicole, says, you know, that worked pretty well when employees stayed with one employer for basically their entire career. But the labor market today is incredibly competitive. And if someone doesn't like where they work, they'll pick up and go somewhere else. To recruit and retain the best talent, organizations need to get this down. And I think anyone who serves in any leadership position in an organization knows that success or failure turns on talent. If you don't have the right talent, then you're probably not headed in the right direction. I think it it can, to some people, often seem a little bit fuzzy to grapple with these internal biases and one's positioning toward the world and others. But when you think about what happens if we don't do that, that our organizations plateau or fail, I think it underscores the urgency a little bit more.
0: One last question. Both of you have not met until this podcast. What was it like for the two of you talking about these issues together on this podcast?
3: I find it it fun and instructive because the first thing I want to do when reading a narrative style book like this, that's clearly teaching something, is to step back and look at my own workplace. But even more than that, and this is something I grapple with as a founder, is understanding other workplaces because I'm so early in my career I've worked at two companies, one of which I founded, and I have no idea what team meetings look like at other organizations. Like we could be doing things in such weird ways. I'm sure that Jeff could, as someone who runs meetings and manages others, could
4: add so much to my experience. And similarly, I feel like talking with Jackson gave me a perspective that I don't have in my personal experience. Jackson's the founder of a company I work for in increasingly large Corporation. So I've seen a very large organization from within the middle of it, serving in a leadership role over a few teams, but by no means occupying a C suite position where I can think holistically across the organization about culture. But Jackson's in a position where those organizational culture pieces in every facet of the company stop with him. And that's just a a perspective that I find very valuable. So I think putting our brains together has been a very useful exercise.
0: Great. Well, thank you both for joining me today.
4: Thanks for having us.
0: Welcome back. I really appreciated that conversation with Jackson and Jeff. And now I am rejoined by my co-host, Carla Hickman. Carla, you just got a chance to hear Jackson and Jeff Respond and react
1: to the excerpt. What are your thoughts? You know, my first thought was how affirming it was to hear two men who are in positions of leadership and management, very different organizations, don't know each other. You know, this is the first time they're meeting as well. And yet they had so much in common. They are so thoughtful about the dynamics in the workplace. And I really appreciated that in both of their circumstances, this is a book that not only they've read and they're thinking about bringing up scenes and situations from their lives, but both of them acknowledge wanting to bring it back to their workplaces and to share it with friends. And I think oftentimes for women, I want to believe that there are male allies. I know that there are male allies in my life and in my organization, but I often don't hear their conversation. So I almost felt like I was getting to eavesdrop on a conversation that I'm not often invited to, which was nice. I also thought it was really interesting because other early readers, particularly with this specific excerpt that we all just listened to, they're like, did Melanie dream this up? Where did this come from? Like, you know, did this come from her research? Was this personal experience? And I happen to know that this one actually does have a really good backstory. And so I was hoping that you could share it with all of us today.
0: This one actually came from something that I experienced in grad school, uh, not just once, but twice where I, too, was in a graduate seminar where the majority of the participants were women. We had a male professor and a small number of men in the class. And in most classes, the men took up the heads of the table and the women were on the sides and we would watch them volley back and forth and we would try to get our word in, but it was hard and sometimes we would just give up. And so we started talking after class. Well, how do we stop this? And if so much of it is about spatial dynamics, let's just reclaim the space. And so we did exactly what I then wrote for these characters, which is that we got to class about five, maybe 10 minutes early, and all the women just purposely took all the seats on the heads of the table and on one side of the table, and we left one side of the table open for the male professor and our male colleagues. And in both cases, it was just so amazing. It was like a completely different class. And I don't know how much of it was that we felt like we claimed our power by just taking the seats from the beginning. Maybe we were more likely to be assertive and, and lean in even and all of that. But whatever the reasons were, those two classes felt completely different. And what was different about it wasn't just that we talked more as women, but the way we talked more. And that's why at the end of this scene, I wanted Kyle to reflect on points versus assists, because what we discussed afterwards as the woman in the class was that our participation wasn't just about we wanted greater volume and numbers of how often we were talking, but we wanted to make sure that when we were talking, we were calling on one, one another. We were reaffirming what each other were saying. It wasn't just about getting our own voices in, it was about amplifying each other.
1: And I thought it was interesting for Jackson and Jeff to remark on the socialization that men have to be assertive, that even when that isn't, I felt like what I was hearing that they didn't quite say was it didn't always feel natural to them. It wasn't the way that they would have participated in a room and yet from their earliest days they've been socialized that this is the way that male leaders are to behave and this is the coaching they received in the classroom from teachers and from mentors and now in their leadership roles and so that powerful woman taking over and changing the dynamics in the room I can only imagine how that would feel not only for Kyle but for all the Kyles that are out there how sort of jarring that would be because it's not what they've been socialized to believe is correct. Well, I liked what Jeff said about how
0: that wiring and that unconscious programming is so strong that you don't even know where it came from. You don't even know if you were
1: programmed a certain way or just that's what you believe because you believe it. That's absolutely right. I think the other thing that Jackson and Jeff speak a little bit about is just the other hallmarks of an effective meeting. So they talk quite a bit about efficiency and having a planned agenda. And so we go into this directive mode or this volleying back and forth because we've got to be in this meeting to get things done. Earlier in Beyond Leaning In, so for all of you out there, when you read the full book, you'll notice there is actually a conversation between two characters about a tool that the women use in moments like this that actually tracks how often men are speaking versus how often women are. And many early readers in our focus group conversations have said, you know, why do you need a tool? You know, this is happening. You know, if you just take a moment and reflect, everybody knows that the women are talking far less than the men are. But I think for me, it was another moment of, actually, it helps me to realize I'm not imagining things. This really is happening. And it also gives me quantifiable data, I mean, unfortunately we are data-driven, right? So it gives me a quantifiable piece of evidence that I can then take and spark a conversation with leadership that really helps, I think, men who, again, don't even realize where this programming is coming from to appreciate the dynamics of a room.
0: For listeners who haven't seen it, there is a tool online called Our men Too much.com and you just push a button when a man is talking and you push a button when a woman is talking and at the end of the meeting, it gives you percentages And it is interesting for the characters to reflect on, is it needed because it gives you that number or is it needed because you know you're not alone or you know you weren't imagining it?
1: Well, I hope, you know, whether you use a tool like that or not, or it's simply something that you've observed in the interactions of your workplace, I hope that this doesn't just spark women talking to one another. But what I really appreciated about Jackson and Jeff was this was men who are talking to one another who are reflecting and processing a situation and figuring things out. You know, at the top of the episode today, Melanie, you talked about how important it is for them to have that space as well, that they need an opportunity in their own day-to-day life to be able to have that conversation. I've also heard you say the things that women sort of prioritize in the workforce, the equity issues are also just connected to a larger generational shift. And we might be seeing that in some of the millennial men that we work with each day. Can you tell us a little bit more about that connection? I think of it as a Venn diagram. And you've got one circle, which
0: is the things that women historically have more likely valued in the workplace compared to men. And you have another circle, which is the things that millennials, both men and women, often value more in the workplace. And there's this intersection, and the intersection is things like authenticity of leaders, things like work-life sustainability, things like being comfortable talking about topics like the inner work that we need to do on ourselves when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I feel like a lot of that was running through that conversation with Jackson and Jeff talking about that inner work, that reflection that needs to
1: happen. And even after every meeting, so it's small moments, right? How could I have run that meeting better? Was I supportive of my direct report? Am I amplifying their contributions. I think that's something all of our listeners and readers can take away. It's something I'm going to take away um, as I think about the rest of my work week and how I'm interacting with people across my organization. And I hope what everyone takes away from this again is that Beyond Leaning In is a book for all genders and all generations. There is a space in this conversation and discussion for everyone.
0: I like that you said that in terms of the small moments every day because I think that diversity, equity, and inclusion can feel overwhelming when we just think about it as big, gigantic policies that have to happen organization-wide. Those are necessary, and so I don't want to undermine them. But if you just have those, you miss out on actually where a lot of the change and a lot of the challenges come, which are those day-to-day interactions, every single meeting, uh, whether one-on-one or as a group, and the kind of work and reflection we can do related to those, and that anyone can do that. You don't have to be at the top of your team or org chart to be able to make change.
1: That's absolutely right. Well, as always, it's been a great conversation today and we are looking forward to the next episode. We will see you all there.
0: And thanks again to Jeff Martin and Jackson Boyer for joining us today. Thank you all for listening. I'm Mel Nuho, author of Beyond Leaning In, Please buy the book on Amazon or through www.beyondleaningin.com, where you can contact us and also learn more about the broader Beyond Leaning In conversation and community. This podcast is produced by Katie Sunku Wood at Studio Pod Media. Edits were made by Lab. Music is by Mountain House. Please subscribe, rate, share, and get in touch with your ideas.